You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I'd like to start with Psalm 93. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, that'd be great. To, it's a very short psalm. Um, I've been in the habit now for some time, whenever I'm in any other passage of Scripture, I try to connect it to a psalm. And Psalm 93 is part of the enthronement psalms. Uh, it's a psalm I sent to uh, my brother who lives in Hong Kong. Um, and... Uh, of course, their sensitivities and consciousness is heightened in these days of prayer and concern uh, for their land um, and for their place. Um, and uh, Psalm 93 speaks to the sovereignty of God and his control and his rule. It ties in really well with the message you've just heard, if you've come from uh, the worship service in the nave, and it ties in well with, uh, with our theme today in Revelation. Psalm 93, listen carefully, this is God's word. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. So in this really brief five-verse psalm, you have a statement of the Lord is sovereign. It's in the classification of enthronement psalms where Israel's uh, king was a metaphor, an analogy, a parable looking forward to the Lord's sovereign rule and reign. And then that established throne is set in contrast to the seas, that are tumultuous and roaring. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Something of the Sea of Humanity in Hong Kong, uh, numbering in the tens of thousands in this last 24 hours in a peaceful demonstration uh, of all demographics in the city of Hong Kong, asking for freedom and for democracy. The sea is a picture, a metaphor throughout uh, scripture of the chaos, uh, an easy, un easily understood metaphor. It's interesting, um, in the book of Revelation, it says that in the future there will be no sea. And it speaks directly to the metaphor of the uh, tumult and commotion that uh, the sea was a picture of when it came to evil. Uh, now, my son, uh, middle son, a surfer and a lifeguard and loves the ocean and knows the ocean probably better than any other physical reality, uh, he does not identify with living where there is no sea. Uh, 
So as I explained to him, the metaphor it has to do with the, with the evil and the chaos, the drownings and the rip currents and the shark attacks. It doesn't have to do with the beauty of God's creation reflected in the oceans. Um, but then that chaos of the sea is compared in that final verse, your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. So it is the word of God, the word that's stated, the word that's so emphasized in the book of Revelation, which let's turn to now. Psalm 93 is a psalm that comes to mind when I think of the opening vision of Christ in the book of Revelation. There is a uh, single sheet that has the scripture on it, if you need that, um, that I circulated around. And plus your Bibles, it has the first chapter of Revelation on it. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, in these moments in your word, many coming from worship, yet we remain in your presence in the spirit this Lord's day. Please speak to us and guide us. May our lives be centered in you, Lord Jesus, in the spirit, the glory of the Father. Amen. On page one of this handout, uh, Revelation, a prison epistle like no others, let me just quickly move through that if this is your first class, um, and we'll take five minutes to do this. I'm suggesting to you that the book of Revelation is a canonical climax that has been underappreciated because it has scared us. Uh, it's the devil's favorite book because of the controversy that often surrounds the book of Revelation. Uh, in a way, a needless uh, controversy because people have gotten a hold of this and kind of imposed their imagination on it. Now, imagination is really important. Uh, I have been surrounded by a lot more imagination this week in my four-year-old grandson, Micah. Um, he can be in the living room all by himself staging a huge battle just himself with uh, his enemies and himself and just all alone in that room. And it, uh, you do realize as an adult, you lose something. You lose something of our imagination. Uh, I just happened uh, upon R.K. Rowland's uh, Harvard commencement address in 2008, I think it was, uh, yesterday. And she talked about two things, and one of them was imagination and the importance of that. And before she became a success as a writer, she worked for Amnesty International interviewing and reviewing reports of basically atrocities and the stories of individuals that had suffered tremendous persecution. And she ended that description by saying, it's really possible to take people so seriously, to hear their stories, to enter into their life situations, that you put yourself in their shoes by compassion, by empathy, by concern, by effort, by what you do on their behalf. Uh, that's an adult imagination that gets out of oneself and into the life of another for their sake. Well, what John gives to us in Revelation chapter 1 is a praying imagination 
that actually imagines himself in the presence of God. Is that aided by the Holy Spirit in the Spirit this Lord's Day? I definitely think so. I don't think this is just his independent self trying to imagine things. I believe the Holy Spirit is working with his imagination to envision the presence of God in Christ. And it leads to a vividness, uh, a vividness that goes well beyond sometimes our doctrinaire way of speaking and our creedal way of speaking. He's just fully there, body, mind, and soul. Well, this book of Revelation is a canonical climax. You can look at that one-act drama. Who understood this book best? The first recipients, the first horizon, the first people that got the letter. They were in that Roman imperial context being persecuted for Christ. Uh, the, the sweep of state-sponsored persecution had already reached a peak if John is writing in the 90s, but nevertheless, Domitian being the emperor made the church suffer tremendously. Um, an interesting, Domitian's an interesting character, uh, kind of in some ways a minor character, but in control of everything. A person that did not have a great deal of capacity, it would seem, uh, especially as he became paranoid that he would be assassinated. Uh, he made statutes of himself throughout the city and made people call him Lord and God and bow down to his imperial statues. Uh, he began killing off the people that were close to him because he feared for his own safety. He killed his own nephew who was uh, a confessing Christian. Uh, and when he finally uh, killed his administrative assistant, his wife took uh, over and uh, had him killed. Uh, it's, the Caesars are interesting in that they controlled this huge empire, but at the center was total chaos and fear and paranoia. So he's an interest. It's probably the emperor that sent John to Patmos. Um, it's not a one-act drama is where I'm looking right now. It's not a one-act. Uh, it is a one-act drama. It's not a work of spontaneous combustion. It is rather a meticulously crafted theological manifesto. He is a poet. He is a prophet. He's an Old Testament theologian. He's steeped in the ministry of Jesus. How much he learned in the upper room, how much he learned in those days before Jesus ascended. All of that's coming together in this letter. Letter C on number two, the Apostle John's communicational strategy. I outlined seven of those. Uh, take a look at that. I think it, uh, it's pretty clear. Numbers are not magical in the book of Revelation. They're linguistical. They're poetic. Uh, they mean something. So it's not like the number seven is a magic number, or number 10, or number 12, or uh, mul multiples of 12 are magical. It's that it's a way of speaking. Um, I'm not a big fan of the Enneagram, but some of you are, and some of you know your number. Um, that's not supposed to be a magical number, is it? It's not a cultic number. It's a shorthand notation of how you see your personality. Uh, yeah. So that's, uh, that's what I'm meaning by numbered meaning. So if you turn the page to lesson two, is what we discussed last week. 
uh, the Apostle John expressing his own identity in seven features. Uh, remember the emphasis on the emphatic eye of self-understanding. I am who I am because of Christ from 1 Corinthians 15. And his name, not his title, uh, designating himself as your brother, your companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that ours in Jesus Christ. I was on the island of Patmos. His place, his location, is has to do with God's sovereign will in his life. Number two, the author of the Revelation drew on the biblical experience of Daniel to fulfill his calling. And that happens in three ways, I believe. One, I think he identified with the Old Testament prophet Daniel because God gave Daniel a revelation and John uses that same language, God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Uh, secondly, the actual message of Daniel corresponds well to the actual message of Revelation. And then finally, the vision that we'll look at today, the vision of Christ, is uh, foreshadowed in Daniel's vision of the ancient son of da uh, the ancient of days and the son of man. So we're to lesson three, and there should be a one before that twelve. The Jesus I need to know, Revelation one, twelve to twenty. Um, there are seven visions of Christ in the book of Revelation. We're looking at the first vision today, but here are the seven visions. The sevenfold vision of Christ shapes the message of Revelation. Uh, remember I said that the book of Revelation has a spiral to it. It's not linear. It's not linear and it's not literal. It's spiraling and it's metaphoric. And it's important, I think, to, to keep that sense in mind is that the book of Revelation doesn't begin in chapter 1 and end with a linear historical stream. Instead, it's like this. And that's why the end, the end, and you're reading the book to find out about, about the end, the end occurs seven times in the book of Revelation. So it goes all the way up, ends. No, not quite. And then all the way up, not quite. The end, and then not, and it does that with a spiraling effect. That's why it's so hard to track because we have very linear chronological minds, and John's not writing that way. He's writing for the intensification of the message, and also just as you think theologically, why would the end be described seven times? Well, I think the end is described seven times because of the mercy of God. It could end it right now, but extends that end for the sake of the people that he's made in his image, uh, to redeem them, to call them to himself. And one of the prevailing undercurrents that r runs through the book of Revelation is the resistance people have to the most obvious truth of God's sovereignty and God's redemption. And just that... Uh, you know, refusal, adamant refusal to respond to this truth. Now, with that said, I don't want to in any way minimize what it is and the hardship it is to believe in the secular age. Because everything you have coming at you is to say, nature alone 
and self-rules. That's it. We live in an absolutely materialistic world, and you're in charge, and you create your identity. And that, that is promoted from every conceivable angle, it would seem. And sometimes, even in the church, it gets sort of Christianized, that kind of philosophy. John's vision of the one like the Son of Man is deeply rooted in the Old Testament metaphor, symbol, and experience. B, the sevenfold vision of Christ shapes the message of the revelation. Let me run through this. You can look at that more carefully, especially more biblically, by looking at the reference. But today we have number one, the vision of someone like the Son of Man is shaped out of seven features. I'll talk about that in a moment. Number two, the letters to the seven churches each pull one aspect of today's vision, chapter one. They take one line, one phrase, one aspect, and that's the identifying line that's used of Christ in the letter to a particular church. So you put all seven of those together, and you kind of have a uh, another version, a rendition of the vision that's in chapter one. So it takes that first vision and breaks it up into its phrases of description and uses it for the letters to the seven churches. We'll try to do the letters to the seven churches in one fell swoop next week. Um, they're all kind of two-minute messages. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I would love the Lord's two-minute analysis of the Advent. <laughs> Save us a lot of time. Uh, uh, so that's next week. Number three, worship in heaven centers on the Lamb who was slain. All heaven sings and shouts, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. Revelation, once you start to get into it, um, becomes laid out in a simpler fashion than you probably think right now. Uh, chapter 1 introduces with a vision of Christ. 2 and 3 are the letters to the seven churches. 4 and 5 is John's vision of, of heaven and the introduction of the Lamb who was slain. The Lion of tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. A powerful description of the centering throne of God. Number four, the fourth vision comes at the center of the book and reveals the birth of Jesus and the advance of the church against the backdrop of cosmic spiritual conflict. The devil is on the war path and the bride of Christ, the church, holds fast to the testimony about Jesus. Twelve and uh, twelve is basically, and I've preached both, I've preached, twelve is kind of divided in half. That first half is the Christmas message the coming of Christ in the Incarnation. The second half is the Easter message, the resurrection and coming of Christ. And you got both of those put in in, a, in John's way of preaching, which is a powerful way of proclaiming Christ. Fifth, the fifth vision, the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000. The number signifies all the true believers of the Lamb, their signs sealed and delivered. The sixth vision is of the militant Messiah, the conquering Christ, who's called faithful and true. And his robe is dipped in blood and he's leading the armies of heaven. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the seventh and final vision, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end.
So I think it's important to lay out the fact that there are these seven visions that center the book of Revelation. So if you turn the page uh, to the Christ vision, uh, number two, and we'll pick it up in verse 12 in Revelation chapter 1. And let me begin quick with a first uh, with a story. Um, Paul Long Jr., my brother-in-law, graduated from Reformed Theological Seminary now a long time ago, just like me. Um, and his first call was to two small churches outside of Montgomery, Alabama, two rural churches. In one of those churches, the pulpit, kind of like this, and the back wall was kind of like this in this small country church, only about three feet behind him. A huge picture of Jesus done very poorly. Jesus had pale blue eyes and a pale blue robe on and his feet didn't touch the ground. And, you know, I said to Paul, we visited Paul and uh, I said, Paul, you got to take that picture down. Well, Aunt Ruby had painted that picture and uh, Aunt Ruby didn't go to the church, but her extended family went to the church. And Paul said, if I take that picture down, it'll split the church. So he didn't take the picture down. Um, but it's always stood out to me as kind of a parable on how we create our image of Jesus. We often fashion our image of Jesus out of our uh, selves rather than out of Scripture. Instead of uh, being submissive to the picture that Scripture gives us of Jesus, uh, both in his humility and as well as in his power. Uh, so we, we live with the distorted views of Jesus all the time. They need to be challenged and questioned. The next pastor who came took the picture down and split the church. And all Aunt Ruby's people left. Um, uh, you know, that you can see. But I feel like as a... Well, just as a fellow believer, a brother and companion in the patient, in the suffering of kingdom and patient endurance at ours in Jesus, I wrestle with people's images of Jesus all the time. And that's one reason why I enjoyed so much teaching the book of Revelation in Ghana, where they're like first century believers. And they haven't been infiltrated with all sorts of crazy ideas. And they're just open. What does Scripture say? And, uh, I mean, that's a marvelous opportunity. Uh, a, under number two, John's experience is voice-driven, not sight-driven. It's rooted in past revelations. Verse 12 of Revelation 1. I turned around. Now, I turned around. That's kind of odd, isn't it? I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, okay, it's emphasized twice, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, the turning around, what does that mean? Could it be uh, signifying that this is an Old Testament rooted message? That uh, what is before John... Uh, 
has been revealed in the Word of God. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was somewhat like a son of man. Now, th this doesn't mean that John's confused or doubting. It means that he doesn't have a lock on this vision. He's not in control of it. This is a way of speaking humbly uh, of what he is envisioning. Dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. You know that uh, your clothes often speak probably more immediately than your resume. Um, we, and especially in this culture today, we judge people by appearance way too much. Um, the first thing John sees is this robe reaching down to his feet uh, with a golden sash around his chest. Uh, here's a picture of the great high priest, uh, the high priest. This is uh, Aaron and his legacy. Um, the office of the one he sees is the one responsible for uh, our, our coming into the presence of God. Speaking of robes, uh, and maybe I'm distracting myself and you right now, but uh, one Sunday I was speaking, uh, preaching in the 7.30 service, and I noticed Lee Scott. Lee is a musician. And he had just had back surgery. It was his first Sunday back. And uh, I noticed that during the whole sermon, he never looked at me. And I uh, thought that was a little odd. I had actually visited him. Um, and uh, so I, I didn't think he was provoked at me. Um, but he, he kept his eye bent left the whole time. He, he sits on the left side facing the front. And... Uh, and I thought, well, maybe he's in a lot of pain. So I, afterwards, I, I made a point of talking with him. And I said, Lee, how are you doing? Are you in a lot of pain? I said, yeah. I said, well, I noticed that you were looking away from me. the whole. I heard everything you said, he said. But he said, I was just captivated by the stained glass window. And that stained glass window shows Jesus being baptized. You remember that window? Do you remember what Jesus is wearing? He's wearing a red robe, but the robe is ill-fitting. It doesn't, it doesn't look like it belongs on him, but it's on him. And, you know, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't think a lot about the stained glass windows. Um, you know, I'm a low church Presbyterian. Uh, but Lee began to explain that this... Uh, this ill-fitting red robe is a symbol of our sins that were put upon Jesus. And in that baptism, he is being baptized not only into the complete will of the Father, but also into uh, what the challenge and the responsibility of taking upon himself our sins, that ill-fitting red robe. All I have to say is that I'll never look at that stained glass window the same without the theology of the redemption that is found in that picture that Lee brought to my attention. 
and that underscores the fact that this this language here speaks metaphorically, not literalistically. The point here isn't to make a picture. The point here is to understand the parable, the truth that's being drawn out, the theological truth. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. White being both a picture of wisdom as well as though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, Isaiah 1. And his eyes were like blazing fire. And his feet were like bronze, iron and, and copper glowing in a furnace. The tensile strength of copper, the strength and, uh, of, of steel. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. I grew up near Niagara Falls. Um, it happened to be close, Niagara Falls, to my parents' and grandparents' favorite fish store. Uh, I spent a lot of Fridays in Niagara Falls. Uh, I have been at Niagara Falls when no one else was in the dead of winter. And it's just the tremendous thrust of that uh, cataract of water and power. And that's the picture that John is giving us here of the voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. What are stars uh, symbolic of? But astrology and the worship of stars and the pagan religions. And, and here, the Son of Man is pictured, Jesus is pictured as holding the stars in his hand. Complete control. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth, this is why you don't draw a picture. <laughs> Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword, the one that uh, the author of Hebrews references as well, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Do you get the paradox? Seven golden lampstands illuminating the one whose face is like the sun shining in all its brilliance. What a paradox that the Son of Man chooses to be illuminated by these symbols of the church, the seven golden lampstands, and yet his face is brilliant like, all, like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. You notice on, uh, under number F, this, uh, the box there, hair, eyes, feet, face, mouth, hand, voice in the center. See that box? Uh, these are the seven character features of the one like the Son of Man, the Son of Man. These are the defining characteristics. Uh, and you notice that it's a chiastic structure, which is a way that the biblical writers often uh, wrote in order to give a certain kind of symmetry to their writing. Uh, it is a poetic feature. But you see how voice is at the center, and the proclaimed word of God is always the center of this gospel. And you notice how hair and face, encounter and benevolence, eyes and mouth, relationship and communication, feet and hand, capability and action. Here's the statement of what this uh, character description of Jesus represents, this kind of uh, fully engaged uh, reality of the living God. And this is what John envisions in his praying imagination. Uh, 
This will motivate you to do personal worship. This will motivate you to understand the ethic of Jesus. Uh, this will motivate you to shape your uh, business actions. Uh, this praying imagination is not something in a way to be dismissed at all, but in a sense grasped, embraced. Um, I mean, we could dwell on each one of these features, but John wants to give us this impression, this high impact impression. And notice what he does. In verse uh, 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Uh, letter A on your outline, this John cannot contain, control, package, or manipulate the vision. The vision controls him. He doesn't control it. And it's significant that John begins and ends his vision of the Son of Man with a self-description, his I statements. When I saw him, and I'm tying that back up to uh, when he describes himself, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom, patient endurance that ours in Jesus, verse 9. His I statements all revolve around the relationship, the praying, uh, doxological relationship that he has with Jesus. And the vision removes the pride and the fear that gets in the way of truly following the Lord Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. B on your outline, falling at Christ's feet as though dead is so un-American. And I hope you agree. We declare our independence. We defend our personal autonomy. But John surrenders adoringly to the Alpha and the Omega. Christ is not a means to an end. Christ is the beginning and the end and all points in between. I don't know. You know, have you ever had that kind of humbling experience before the living God? Have you had God place his right hand, as it were, on you and say, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. You know, I think we all in Christ would agree that this is not an optional experience. Uh, this is the fundamental experience of the gospel where we come to the end of ourselves and on bended knee realize that uh, we completely know, need the grace of the Lord, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need God to say to us, do not be afraid. We need to understand that he's the first and the last encompassing everything about our lives that he indeed is sovereign over our loved ones, over ourselves. We could spend some time, given that, on competing images of power that um, are in your life, my life. In my book, Follow the Lamb, I, I, took, I take two as illustrations, Domitian and uh, Steve Jobs. 
I wrote in 2014, just about the time where uh, Steve died. Um, Isaacson had written his biography on Steve Jobs. Um, this week, uh, we, I was watching the news with Micah. If you've come in late, Micah's uh, almost five. And we're watching the news, and he says, Granddad, can they see us? Oh, no, he, I'm sorry, he phrased it different. They can't see us, can they? And I said, no, Micah, they can't see us. And it's such an interesting comparison between the reality of the vision of Christ that sees through us, eyes like blazing fire that can discern everything about us, versus the idolatry of the celebrity or the idolatry of the power image, the person that's out there that everybody sees but they cannot see you. And that ties in with the theme of Isaiah where uh, he describes the idols and the eyes of the idols that cannot see, they're whitewashed over. Uh, that so much of what we look at cannot see us and doesn't care to see us. And here's the description of the image of Christ where Christ does discern us completely see us. Uh, 19, write therefore what you have seen and what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand are and, and of the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The church global, the church universal, Every aspect of the church is contained in the symbolism of the stars and the lampstands. And now write to them my message for them. And that's what we'll look at next week. Any comment? Quick word. Yeah, there's a, kind of a significance to a lot of numbers in the book of Revelation. Uh, 3, 7, 10, 12, 1,000, 144,000. They're all symbolic. But they're shorthand code, as it were. Seven would speak of completeness, perfection. Uh, and it's counterpoint 666. Um, the reality that uh, the unholy trinity of the dragon and the sea beast and the land beast are just one off, 666, from the perfection of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and as we proceed, we'll kind of explore what those numbers mean. Um, four is a symbol of the earth, north, south, east, and west. Three is a symbol of the Trinity. Um, so all of these factors in and multiples of these numbers have a way of speaking in shorthand notation a theology, a theological reality. But they're not magical. That's, I think, important. Kristen?
and I said, is Jesus literally the light or the sun? And Philip said, yes, he's the light. So we go back and forth, and I'm trying to rationally explain the metaphor, and he's getting very frustrated with me. And so I said, well, let's try another one. Jesus is the way. Is he literally a path or a road? And he paused, and he said, Mom, you know nothing about Jesus. Yeah, it's hard for uh, we live in such a materialistic world, and that uh, that's affecting us as adults now. I think in tremendous ways. Yeah, also one of the traits of modernity was to minimize metaphor. So going back to Aristotle, who thought that the best language was literal language, and metaphor was uh, less. Right. Metaphor as such um, could be could mean so many things, uh, and we don't like that. <laughs> we believe in great invisible truths: the incarnation, the atonement, the bodily resurrection, the second coming of Christ. Uh, our only way to grasp those, in many respects, is metaphoric. That doesn't mean it's fictional. It means it's truer than the facts that limit our knowledge on this side. So, well, more of that as we go, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your goodness to us. Help us in this week to live in the light of the vision of you. Through the glory of the Father and through the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and in the wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.